Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 97. This week, as the world continues to focus on inflation and the cost and the cost of everything going up and the value of money decreasing, and how many ways can I say this same idea <laughs> off the top of my head? <laughs> it's like when we were looking at the things people are interested in politics, the, the like biggest issues facing them, and they were like number one, inflation, number two, the economy, number three, yeah, the yeah. cost of goods. <laughs> I'm basically those people. <laughs> we wanted to talk about a related issue, uh, and the related issue is the budget. Now, this could be talked about really at any time, but this I saw that Rand Paul pulled out a budget called the Six Penny Plan, is what it's oh, been nicknamed. Oh, because you think that's think all the money the federal up. government deserves is six pennies. I get it. It's good. It's good. I like <laughs> it. Six pennies. <laughs> If we reduce their budget to six cents, we, we should be able should to solve right a number of problems. <laughs> you certainly would limit the problems government was causing would be significantly limited. Whatever else was happening, we'll <laughs> set aside. We'll just look at the positive. Yeah, exactly. Think positive, Dan. That's what I've been doing ever since COVID. So, ever since COVID, good, good. I think I hear it's good for your health. Can't be, can't be worse than. Uh, some of the other recommendations. Um, so w- as far as the budget goes, uh, there, there's lots of, obviously, when we're talking the, the federal, the budget of the federal government, we could be talking about anything, which is, makes it really convenient in a lot of ways. <laughs> I'm looking at Brad's face and he's just over there trying not to make eye contact <laughs> through the computer. It's pretty Which easy, is pretty yeah. easy because generally you can't, you actually can't make eye contact through the computer unless you put the camera on your eyes or something anyway. It used to be that there would be a budget written by Congress where they would say, we expect to bring in X amount of money mm-hmm. through taxes. Here's how that money's going to be spent. Now that's, that's too old fashioned for these days. <laughs> these days we go, how much do we have to give them to keep everything running in a panicked moment? A week before everything shuts down. <laughs> to be fair, Dan. And people throw to be numbers fair, Dan, up there. The, the normal <laughs> process proceeds and doesn't work and inevitably results in that chaotic moment at the end. You know, on paper, theoretically, <laughs> the everything could go according to plan. And the plan is is wild. It's a lengthy process. The president will actually submit his budget in February. And the fiscal year doesn't start until October. So it's it's half the year that the that this process is going on and they still can't get it figured out in that time. You know, it's not like they only had two weeks and right. they couldn't figure it out. No, they had a long time and still couldn't figure it out. But let's let's talk some some details before we get into this, because why are we talking about this? There's a number of reasons. The number one reason is there are a few pressing problems that are going to become an issue. You know, people always talk about fiscal responsibility and blah, blah, blah. Governments, by definition, are not responsible, nor are they anything like responsible. So that shouldn't even be a goal, right? No, let's talk about what's actually going to happen, because the federal government been fiscally irresponsible for decades and nothing bad's happened yet, right? So here's the things that are on the table for the federal government. The two biggest things is the the ballooning national debt is eventually going to become a problem because the thing is, is that right now our federal debt is somewhere around $30 trillion, which is significantly more than the gross domestic product of the United States. In other words, all that's being produced in the United States, all the money that the United States is making, not as a as a government, but as a country isn't even enough to pay the the national debt down which is wild and on top of that you've got you've got a few growing problems with that number 1 the interest payments the interest payments right now are somewhere around 300 billion dollars a year so every time every year when we make this budget dan a growing chunk of that budget is just the interest payments on that debt and those interest payments are ballooning and so they're going to continue growing and and which of course leads to the big problem with this debt is that even if 
our debtors are benevolent, which is the argument that's always made is, hey, we don't have to pay these off right now. It's not a big deal. The fact of the matter is, is if the interest keeps growing and the debt keeps growing, there's no way for us to ever pay it back at all and not just pay it back, but stop that interest from ballooning. And pretty soon we won't be able to have a federal government budget at all because the interest payments will be larger than the federal budget. You know, that's just one example of the kind of problem you could have with this yes. with this national debt. The other Yes, I don't know how it's calculated, but uh the Department of Labor gives the number four hundred and about forty billion for the interest on debt currently. Um and it is the fourth largest item on the budget after Medicaid and Medicare together are number one, Social Security number two, uh defense Number three, number four is the interest. Yeah, and how you calculate that interest will give you different numbers. And that's one of the great things Mm -hmm. about these federal budget numbers is when you're talking (laughs) in the trillions of dollars, it's nuts. You know what I mean? When we talk about the ultra rich, where we're like, what would we even do with that much money? We're talking hundreds of billions. You know what I mean? This is, this is a kind of thing where, where Elon Musk could liquidate all of his assets and he could put a dent on one year's interest payments on the debt. You know what I mean? That's the kind of money yes, we're talking yes. about. Right, right. And then the other the other problem we have is Social Security. Social Security is slowly going down the drain and is no longer paying for itself and is going to get considerably worse over the next few years. And since Social Security is such a large part of the budget – that could cause some serious ripple effects. So those are kind of the two big reasons people focus on the federal budget and why why it matters is that the federal government needs to be able to pay its bills and the federal government needs to be able to pay for Social Security because those are two things we rely on. I mean, we joke about having the federal government collapse tomorrow by only paying it six cents. But the reality is, is whether or not you like the federal government, the federal government is here. The federal government makes up a surprising percentage of the U.S. gross domestic output. You know what I mean? A huge proportion of the resources we produce as a country go into the federal government and then back out to the people. And so if you cut off that tap overnight – there's going to be serious problems. You know what I mean? Medicare and Medicaid are a huge mm-hmm, proportion mm-hmm. of the money that supports, you know, hospitals and so many other industries that we rely on. Social Security is the retirement, the de facto retirement plan of a huge number of current retirees and soon to be retirees. You know, you pull these rugs out from underneath people and we're talking, you know, potentially economic collapse widespread. Right, right, right. I Joking aside, you, you're absolutely right that these things are are very serious. In order to in order to put the terms and the numbers into terms that people can appreciate a little more, um, the U.S. Department of Labor has numbers like the debt per citizen. That uh, basically, if you were to if you were to take the debt and you were to split it up among every person in the United States, some three hundred yeah, every people, man, woman, and child, not just every work, mm-hmm. every single person, it would be ninety one thousand seven hundred and ninety five dollars per person. Um, if you were to do it by taxpayers, who are ultimately the only people actually contributing uh, to doing anything with the debt, it's $242,986. Um, it's a lot of money. And the idea is that we're all, in, in some ways, indebted in debt through this process. And uh, when you think about it that way, it, uh, I think it hits people a little bit harder. Like, <laughs> as if, how would you feel if you knew you also owed another $250,000 mm-hmm, almost? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, it, uh, puts things into perspective a little bit. So one of the interesting things about this, so you mentioned it, the total numbers about 30, uh, 30 trillion. I almost say billion. I'm looking at the numbers updated live at the usdebtclock.org. <laughs> It's a fun little site if you haven't been there. It gives you a variety of numbers and they're updated. They're I, When I say updated live, I think what they're doing is they're acting on updates, but they're spreading mm-hmm, them across mm-hmm. time. I don't think we actually can collect all this data live. <laughs> well, and, and usually it's it's done in chunks. You know, they'll approve an extra billion in, in debt or 500 million or whatever. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then mm-hmm, that'll play mm-hmm. out on the clock. Uh, so the clock is constantly 
running like a clock, right? The, the numbers are constantly ticking up. Um, and they're, they're not like jumping exponentially usually. So it's a, I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, the way they've decided to update it and those kind of things, but it gives you, but the numbers are from the U S government itself. Um, so it's as accurate as you're going to get probably depending on how you want to calculate the numbers. As Brad indicated, some of these, depending on how you calculate them are going to be going to be a little odd. Um, it can give you radically different numbers depending on what's included, especially when you're talking about massive amounts of money and what, what's categorized with what, uh, so this number, in, in terms of should we freak out is the first question, right? If we're in debt a massive amount, and if you were to apply it to every citizen, every taxpayer, it'd be over $200,000 per, per taxpayer. That seems really bad. <laughs> um, if we're making interest payments on this on a regular basis, that seems bad. Right? There's some basic math here we could do. We could say if, I, if I'm going to buy something and I can buy part one this month, and part two next month, or I could buy part one and two this month, but I have to pay 10% interest. We can see that in two months, I'm going to have lost 10%. Right? I'm going to just through, I'm paying mm -hmm. interest of 10%. That's money that's not getting me any more yeah, stuff. Yeah. And, and it's not always necessarily a bad thing. You know, if you're running a business and you're yes. part one and part two of the machine to produce your good. If you can produce it during those two months rather than producing nothing, it might be worth that 10%. But that 10% is a very yes. real cost that you're paying to have it now versus having later. Yes, and this that's exactly uh, – really glad you pointed that out because that's exactly the basic calculus of a business, right? We're going to – everything involved costs money generally speaking and, and especially for some kind of manufacturing. All of the tools, all of the equipment – all of the initial investment costs money. And the only reason you would do that is if in the long run, you to expect this to, to pay you more than you're going to pay for the goods and the interest, which you're factoring in. The U S government does not turn an interest in terms of the positive profit, things. Uh, it, it doesn't turn that doesn't interest turn a profit. into a yes, profit. I apologize. Yes. Yes. It's not making money on the investment of its spending. Um, now you could get into the weeds of, of each particular issue and say, by spending money on dealing with education now, or right, we're investing in the future and infrastructure and, and so on. But in terms of the, the, the investment per dollar, I mean, there's, there's a variety of economists will go through and they'll try and calculate the effect that money had inserting it into the economy at point A and and, you know, years later, they're trying to estimate how much uh, of a return they got on that. And just kind of glancing over the – or not glancing over, what's the word I'm looking for? Skimming over the economics of this. And maybe that would be something to be interesting to set aside for another time, especially next time there's a big project that is that they're selling people as we're going to spend a trillion now and it's going to have a multiplying effect um, is the term they use. And, and – and it will be as good as spending four trillion later, mm -hmm. or uh, or in, you know they, they use these terms to create the sense of it's an investment that actually is going to return some kind of profit, and then they have various economic uh, testing that they do to try and verify this. Let me just say in short that you cannot verify that. You can't. That a business has profit line, you know, profit margins. It has things that it's tracking. Uh, you can, you can trust, track the expenses. You can track your profits. You can see how much comes in and you can, you can balance your books, right? Um, the, the federal government throwing money out into the nether and then trying to figure out what kind of multiplier it has is, is smoke and mirrors. Well, well, let me put it this way, Dan. If, if they've been throwing these multipliers out for decades, why isn't the GDP so much larger? than the national debt currently. You know what I mean? If if the things they were doing were growing the economy in exponential ways that took time to manifest, then shouldn't we be seeing those benefits and making it so that we were able to have a balanced budget now? You know what I mean? Because, because mm -hmm. we're not seeing that. We're seeing mm -hmm. that every year for 
Since 1974, every year since 1974, the federal debt-to-GDP ratio has gotten worse. So, so we've been growing the debt faster than the U.S. economy has been growing. In other words, our ability to pay off the mm-hmm. debt has just been getting worse. There might be one or two years where it pauses, but generally for the past 50 years – our ability to pay off the debt has just gotten worse and worse and worse as we've gotten more and more in debt, not just numerically, but relative to what we're actually producing. Yes, thank you. Thank you for that. We, we, I mean, let's put a pin on this idea because I think this could be a really interesting one to bring up again and look at a little closer, this idea of, of the multiplier effect as you, through government spending, because I think that is a key argument that is made in defense of this kind of spending. For now, we're going to set that aside. We're going to look, we're going to focus on this deficit topic we've picked up. Um, so there's, there's a couple lines of thought regarding whether or not debt is good mm-hmm. and when is it good with regards to the federal government. With business, it's really clear. The debt is justified when you can use it to mm-hmm. make mm-hmm. more money, when, when it can be <laughs> profitable, essentially. Um, and, uh, but with regards to the federal government, um, when spending is justified and when it isn't is a little bit hazy and it depends on your, some theories of economics. Now there's one group, and this is a relatively small group, thankfully, that says there is actually zero problem with having a growing and ballooning deficit because the federal government can always pay, mm-hmm. pay its bills because it owns the printer. <laughs> <laughs> now this group on the, this group is so far removed from economic realities. Hopefully they're getting a bit of a wake up call right now with the inflation and things. There's a reason you don't want to just print everything all the time. There's a reason when you owe money, you don't just pay it with printed money. Um, now we do to some degree, but <laughs> that's besides the point. You could make inflation much, much worse. You could have all of the problems of inflation multiplied by just being like, you know what? We owe 30 trillion. Boom, done. And that would be, that would be a massive wealth destruction in the US. And obviously right now would be the worst, (laughs) the worst possible time to contemplate it. But the most, the more modern and uh, mainstream thinkers will argue that yes, debt is a problem and we're not thrilled about the interest rate we have to pay, but there's a time and a place to focus on paying the debt. And there's a time to spend. When there's an economic crisis, you need to spend in order to get people out of the the economic crisis. And as such, if you focus on balancing the budget or you focus on uh, trying to cut back during times of economic crisis, you're actually being counterproductive. Part of the reasoning here is, again, pointing back to the multiplier effect, that during this time, spending needs to happen and the people aren't going to spend, so you need to spend. And thus... If you're increasing the debt, that's okay. It gets everything going. And and Dan, this this middle group is is really born of uh, of war historically. In the past, it hasn't been so much times of economic crisis as times when the country has gone to war. I mean, you can go back and and look at the U.S. Uh, you know federal debt by year, and you'll notice that the the worst times, the worst the federal deficit ever got in terms of relative, not federal deficit, federal budget. No, sorry. Words. Federal debt. The worst the federal debt ever got relative to GDP was at the very end of World War II. World War II, the federal debt ballooned like crazy to pay for the war. And and that was and that's right along with that argument where during these times of necessity, during these times where we need to take care of this right now, we need to go into debt. You know, almost like a crisis yes. in a business or a crisis in someone's life. We need to go into debt right now to take care of this crisis. And then as soon as World War II is over, you can watch as year over year over year, that debt to GDP ra- ratio got better and better and better. For several decades afterwards. So it wasn't like they used that excuse and then continued to balloon the debt. No, they actually did work on it after that. Right, right. The uh, the idea of the multiplier effect that we mentioned is something of a post hoc explanation after where they're like, not only is it necessary, it's good. 
<laughs> not only is it, is it uh, something you have to do in some cases when you, when you must, but it's something that is uh, actually beneficial and we need to do more of it. Uh, the war isn't enough to get spending. We need to, we need to spend more things. Um, you're absolutely right to point back to war. So many of the things, so many of the things that have been convenient for political powers in the past eventually become defended economic theories <laughs> and not just, not just necessary evils, but positive goods. Um, the final group is the group that says government debt is, is not acceptable. Um, under any circumstances, you could make, you could probably, uh, make exceptions for things like war. If it's a war of, you know, for survival and things like that. Um, that the federal government should be essentially balancing the budget and we should be minimizing debt, uh, at all times. Um, the difference here is often a fundamental one of economic theory. This group is often much more, uh, what's the word? Uh, less government <laughs> involvement. This is often, this is often partisan lines. Yeah, they're, here. I'm they're, looking, I'm looking for are. a good term. I don't want to give them too much credit because often this is a group that, that uh, we're critiquing as well as agreeing and, and, with. And partially. yes, the, the, the conservatives have a tendency to tout balancing the budget and physical responsibility. That doesn't mean they do it, but that does tend to be a party line policy position. Yeah, it's an important part of the party platform. It's an important part of why they're elected and why people vote for them. It's not something they're, that they have enough interest in doing <laughs> that they do it. <laughs> it's, never, it's never all that important when they're in office and they have the branches necessary to and, make and it Dan, happen. And Dan, that that brings me to, to to my biggest thing about the budget is that the fundamental problem here is how the government is set up. When you do your own personal finances and you take on debt in times of crisis or in times of difficulty or whatever is going on, you make calculations about the future and about your ability to pay it off and what your options are and all of those things come into play. You know, even as something as simple as purchasing a car, you know, which usually involves going into debt, especially if it's a new car. Most people don't have 30 grand just lying around. And so you make calculations about what you're able to pay off because you know you're going to have to live with the consequences of that. And you know that if you file for bankruptcy because you can't pay it off and you have too much debt, that that's going to significantly impact your life. You know, it'll, it'll crush your credit score. It'll affect your ability to purchase a home. It'll affect your ability to purchase a car. It'll increase your interest rates. All of these things are negative consequences to poor decisions, which encourages you as an individual to make good decisions because you have to live with the consequences. The federal government is a little bit different because while the country has to live with the consequences, in terms of the people who are actually making the decisions, the politicians, they aren't going to be running the country forever, especially because the people who get to the most powerful positions tend to be at the end of their career. You know what I mean? You look at you look at, you know, the Speaker of the House, you look at the President of the United States. These are not 40-somethings who have just started their political career. These are people who <laughs> who are, you know, 10 to 15 years past the age when they should have retired and and they're on their last legs. They, it's not that they won't be running the country in 10 years. It's that they won't be alive in 10 years, you know? Um, <laughs> but if they are, they're going to be running the country still <laughs> at this rate. <laughs> Let's just be, just be clear here. None of these people seem like they're retiring. And, and so, and so what's going to happen 30 or 40 years doesn't affect them as much. And that's the other thing about government on this scale is that the consequences can be pushed off much farther than they can for a personal individual. When I when I you know purchase a car and I set up a car loan, I'm not setting up a 120 year loan. You know what I mean? I'm setting up a five year loan, a, a seven year loan, a six year loan. It's a much shorter time frame. With these government loans, it's 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 not. You know what I mean? We're able to keep ballooning our debt in a way a normal individual couldn't, and keep passing the buck over and over and over again. And it makes sense when you think about these politicians and their incentives. I mean, it's the same reason conservative politicians, when they get in power, 
don't balance the budget. It's the reason Donald Trump didn't balance the budget when he was president of the United States, because he ran on a policy of cutting taxes and cutting spending, but he could only cut taxes so much. And on and the more he cut taxes, the smaller the budget was, which made it harder to balance. And then he could cut spending, but most of the, the spending the federal government makes is actually not up for being cut. You know, when they talk about making that budget every year, Dan, I don't know if you know this, but they actually don't decide on huge chunks of it. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, they can't touch it. They can't touch whether or not they, they pay, uh, you know, interest payments on those loans. So all they get to decide is this smaller portion of the budget. You know, when we're looking at a $6 trillion budget, about $4 trillion of that is mandatory. So only one third of that budget is actually being decided by Congress. So when we're talking about balancing the budget and the part of the budget that we have discretion over is actually smaller than the deficit. In other words, it's literally <laughs> impossible to balance the budget the way that it's set up right now. It doesn't make sense. How can you balance a budget when your revenue is about the same size as your mandatory spending? In other words, if you cut all of the discretionary spending, so if you cut the military budget to zero, so you ended the United States military, not cut out some of the unnecessary bases, just ended it, sent everyone home, said goodbye, sell the helicopters, we're done, and then cut, got rid of every other discretionary spending, you know, whether that's any of the things the federal government's wasting their time on every year, you cut all of that, except for the mandatory things. And you would come close to balancing the budget and wouldn't even start taking on the national debt. That would just be not growing the national debt. That's how messed up the federal budget is right now. So as a conservative politician, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go out there and say, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to cut our discretionary budget in half. So we're going to cut the military down to bare bones. We're going to cut these programs all down to bare bones. And on top of that, I'm going to double taxes. Why? Because we need to, to have a balanced budget, and this is the only way to do it. Who's going to vote that guy in? says, I'm going to give you less of what you want, and I'm going to tax you twice as much for it. Who's going to vote for that guy? No one on either party. It seems wildly unpopular. The good news is it'll be our children and grandchildren who suffer most of the consequences, or so the, you know, the, so the story goes, and that's, that's unfortunately... There's a lot to that. It's a, it's a debt that doesn't apply to anyone in particular. No one really suffers the direct consequences, or at least not alone. There are certainly hidden consequences like the interest on the debt that we pay all the time that you mentioned. Um, it, it's amazing. So Rand Paul's budget, uh, this is, and let me begin by saying, there's no reason to hope that this ever passes. <laughs> because in the current political climate, there's not a chance. Because he actually wants to balance the budget, which means he's not only cutting massive he has discretionary to cut the mandatory. It's the only way to balance the budget is you have to, to go after right. Medicare and Social Security, which is political suicide. Yes. So he doesn't – in this particular proposal, he's not going to touch Social Security. He is going after Medicaid and Medicare. Um, I don't know the details of, of what exactly he – was intending to do with that. Um, I know he's floated things like uh, uh, health insurance saving accounts in the past and things like that. Private, uh, private. What's the term for it? private savings accounts? Health savings private accounts. Health savings. Yeah, health savings accounts. Yeah, all these, all these terms here: health, private I, savings. I mean, <laughs> there, some, some of the they fit in some order there to describe. If we combine these words correctly, we'll have hit upon something amazing. <laughs> hit upon the standard terminology for this thing. Um, and as you were saying, you've got to, you have to do that. Uh, right now, the tax revenue, the projected tax revenue, I'm, I'm really intrigued to see if we get anywhere close to it. But again, inflation has an impact on all of this stuff as well in terms of the federal government. It's actually good for debt in some ways. Uh, generally, people look at inflation as, as mm -hmm. beneficial for debt. And that is, that is true. You you increase you can increase the uh, 
number of dollars out there and decrease their individual value. You can accumulate more of them and the debt can't mm -hmm. factor mm -hmm. that in. The, the, uh, the, the number is to some degree frozen in the, in the currency levels that it was acquired in. And so. No, and, and we've talked about that before about how how inflation actually changes your time preference and makes you more likely to go into debt because you'd rather buy something today and pay with tomorrow's money because tomorrow's money is going to be worth less than today's money. And so in many ways, yes. you can actually be better off, which is weird. It's very counterintuitive. It's it's counterintuitive, but it's there's something fundamentally – it certainly makes investing more tempting, investing which is the more point. more tempting? Uh, or at least the perceived point. It makes, uh, excuse me, it makes, uh, as you were saying, spending in the short run more tempting, whether that be in. Yeah. Makes borrowing more tempting. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Which is generally, yeah. I'm, I'm relating it to businesses, but investing is not the right term. Um, anyway, so all of this, <laughs> I, I, I just look at this debt clock, which is having the exact effect it was designed to have as I'm staring at it. <laughs> <laughs> right. The reason you would format it like this is to frighten people. It's to it's to create a response. Sense of urgency. Um, a sense of urgency, yes, that this is something like a bomb. Uh and at the very least, you can imagine what we could do with an extra five hundred thousand dollars a year, four hundred and forty thousand as it is it's measured here, three hundred in the numbers you were looking at, Brad. Um and if we didn't have to pay that, what that would look like. Uh, you said $400,000 a year. I think you meant a different number. <laughs> I did. I, like any other normal human being, I'm not used to seeing numbers when with this many zeros. When we're talking big numbers, we're talking thousands, you know? You my, spend my mind keeps auto-correcting the last digits into decimals, right? The last three at least have Those to be decimals, sense, right? but maybe even... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. Fractions here. At some point, it switches to fractions, right? Right? But yes, the, the extra $400 billion a year that we're just spending on interest. Yes. Uh, that even if you just took that and you invested in something, you could, you could do a crazy amount of things. People were talking about Elon Musk being able to feed the, you know, solve starvation with, uh, <laughs> what was the number? It, I think it was, it was either, I thought it was like 4 6 billion, billion or, or something. Billion. It was small. It was ridiculously low for a fraction of the money we're spending on this. Apparently, we could solve world hunger. That's absolutely not true. But that was the story. Um, if it were that simple, it would have been done. <laughs> if it were that simple, we'd print that money out today, and it would and it would happen. If it were that easy, why wouldn't a politician run on that <laughs> if if they could get away with that? Like, yeah, I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna cut one military base that you didn't know existed, and, solve and I'm gonna hunger. use that money. To solve world hunger, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So jumping back to to the thing, the one thing he didn't want to touch, didn't touch in this particular iteration of his budget plan. This is at least the second. Um, the other I one assume I think it's going to be six, since it's six five pennies, penny right? plan. It maybe it was one penny maybe per the first plan. One was the one penny plan? <laughs> I know the last one was the five penny plan. I stumbled on it as I was looking. I was like, "Wait a second, this has happened before." See, even Rand Paul can't be fiscally responsible with his naming of his plans. You know, they keep growing in <laughs> in size. Keep, even his budget names are blue. Exactly, <laughs> uncontrollable. <laughs> Social Security. There's a reason he didn't touch social social security, and there's a reason that it's universally thought of as insolvent. Because he doesn't want to get mugged again. <laughs> it's probably one of several reasons. Hopefully, not the most pertinent reason. Hopefully, he's not that frightened of getting mugged. But it's not such a risk that it's number one on the list. Social security, in particular, has massive problems. Brad, you summed it up really well the other day, but the, let me just say the original re reasoning and then you carry us through because cr it was cracking me up and it was, it was brutal and accurate, unfortunately. Social security began as like, Hey, let's help people save some money for retirement. What we're going to do is we're going to make it mandatory that you set aside a certain amount and it goes into this pool that you can draw from later in life. That's not going to be based specifically on what you pay into it because some people will pay a lot more, you know, we'll take a little extra from the wealthy. And we'll, yeah, it's we'll, going to be, it's going to uh, be subsidized around a little bit. 
yes, we're going we're gonna to do a little redistributing here. But in general, the basic idea is that you're going to save money and it's going to be paid back to you. For the lower and middle classes, that's effectively what it amounted to. So let's do that. It's simple enough. And then, well, and then a number of things happened. <laughs> the first of which is, who trusted these people to save money? <laughs> why, why did we give the money to the one group that we can be certain is incapable of saving money? Yes, because, because and, that's, and that's the inherent problem is, is what self-respecting politician is going to collect money today and not spend it for 40 years long after they're out of office. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, wh who's going to propose something that's going to cost people right now, but is not going to benefit anyone until long after every single congressman is out of office. Who's going to vote for that? No one. So the obvious solution is, okay, well, let's start paying people on day one, because we're drawing in money on day one. You know, we're getting all these people paying into Social Security. Then we take that money and we pay for all the people who are retiring right now and who have already retired. And then we continue to do that year after year. And it's no problem. And the great thing is we have a very small retired population. People retire fairly late. They don't live a super long time. And we have a growing population, so there are many more working people than there are retired people. you got all these young people and not that many old people, so it'll be no problem for us to take care of a pressing problem right now, because this is, this is, you know, Great Depression, FDR. Let's take care of this pressing problem of these retirees who can't afford to eat. We're going to take care of them. Everyone's going to love it. Everyone's going to be putting money in and thinking that they're putting in money for their own retirement while at the same time helping out these elderly people. It's, you know, the ultimate win, 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 win. <laughs> Somehow your money is paying for these people to retire and you and, retire. And for those of you who are, who are from Utah or have ever been exposed to, uh, to what we like to call a, a pyramid scheme, you might be familiar with this kind of speaking where it's like, wait <laughs> – how many wins was that? How is it possible that this costs nothing and everyone benefits? Could you explain that to me again? It's like, okay, well, it's very simple. You have a small number of people who are benefiting and you get a larger pool underneath them and they get their money up and you get an even larger pool beneath them and they bring their money up and it continues forever and ever and everyone wins. Well, what inevitably happens with a Ponzi scheme or a pyramid scheme is you run out of people. You run out of people and then the whole system falls apart and they leave and they go start another one. Great thing about government pyramid schemes is to take a long time. So by the time this scheme falls apart, not only will you be dead, but your political you know, descendants will be dead and they'll be dead and they'll be dead. I mean, <laughs> FDR has been dead for how long now? A long, long time a long that people time. have been able to enjoy this pyramid scheme and and now, you know, the buck stops. You know, we, we don't have that growing population anymore like we used to have that made this work. Where as long as that younger population kept growing and growing and growing, it helped support that elderly population. But now we don't have a growing population and we have a, a population that was large from the past when it was growing. You know, those growing populations have now grown up and are now collecting benefits and who's going to pay for them. And that's why the calculations, which could be way off, it could be way worse than this, are predicting that Social Security is going to continue to teeter and unless it gets new external money is going to fall apart. In other words, you can't cut from Social Security. You actually have to put more money into Social Security, either through increasing taxes or taking from somewhere else in order to keep Social Security working. So rather than that mandatory spending staying the same, it actually needs to grow, at least in terms of Social Security, in order for Social Security to continue to work. This is part of the what will be a growing series of problems. Here it's most clear because, like you said, it's, it's essentially a pyramid scheme. Um, the uh, So here it's going to be obvious, but this is a this is a, one of many problems that is going to be caused by the, the, the switch where we go from uh, having – uh, where the ratio of the of the populations, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? 
the ratio of the generations um, is going to be flopping. You used to have each generation used to be bigger than the previous generation, mm-hmm. and that's just not true anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, this is going to go off like a bomb in our politics. It's going to go off like a nuclear bomb in Chinese politics. We mentioned it a little bit when we were talking about China and why China actually is not the future. Um, and part of it is because their ratio of people who are old is going to be six to one compared to every other generation combined. It's going to be like, it's, it's, it's insane. insane. It's insane. They're going to have no way to pay for even like the health care of the, of that group, let alone, uh, keep their economy moving forward. And as we hit those same kind of blocks, things like Medicaid and Medicare are going to become relatively more expensive and have relatively fewer people paying into the taxes, right? This is all, all of this is going to uh, increase the cost of our most expensive pieces already, Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security. And it's a good thing the debt isn't growing or the fourth one, the interest rate would also be a problem. Oh, wait, that's also <laughs> growing. <laughs> oh, wait, not we're not even close to balancing the budget, right? It, there's, to some degree, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not comforted by the thought that all this is going to fall apart at some point, or that at least pieces here and there are going to start to crumble. But there is an economic reality undergirding all of these numbers. There's a world of stuff and people, and there's only so much stuff, and in that stuff is valuable as people produce it, and as we have these investments and production process and all these things, and it's not, you can't merely, uh, for so long, the government has in a variety of these ways tried to solve fundamental problems through simple redistribution Mm -hmm. without actually creating more stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, it won't last. It it appears like it won't last. We could get tech, maybe the technological breakthroughs will continue to allow us to do these things for a while. Maybe we'll get some, uh, you know, other things that will happen, but we may have to actually cut things back if we want to continue as a country, as opposed to have some kind of serious collapse. And, and the thing is, is that's you're absolutely right. The only way to stop a brutal economic collapse, and as we've seen with COVID, those are very real and very possible because COVID was, at least in the United States, a mild interruption of our normal lives. You know, most businesses didn't stop. Most major services kept running for the most part with minor interruptions. And yet, <laughs> ironically, it was like the uh, the elite classes generally that stopped, and they felt like everything had stopped. Yeah, with but them. but <laughs> and some of the entertainment. But those of us but. in the blue collar world were like, no, nothing stopped. We're what are you talking about? You haven't been to work in six months. I I never stopped going to work for a week. You know, <laughs> except when you were quarantined. <laughs> yeah, well, I I didn't get COVID till 2021. So so all of 2020, you know, it was just work like normal, except you couldn't do anything fun, <laughs> but work was still there. Don't you worry. Yeah, yeah. But anyways, where was I You're going? You're talking about how that? it was a smaller scale economic Yeah, smaller disruption. scale economic disruption, but it's still having crazy ramifications to this day. If you had the kind of thing where the U.S. government became insolvent, where it couldn't pay its debts anymore, and basically collapsed as a financial institution, not necessarily as a government, <laughs> but as a financial institution, if the United States government collapsed, it would wreck the entire world's economy for who knows how long because everything is tied in to the U.S. financial system. The dollar, the the treasury, these bonds are what the whole system is built around. They are the bedrock and they are a house of cards that is getting worse all the time. And if that collapses, it will make COVID look like a walk in the park. It, it would. It would be absolutely devastating. The basic, the basic exchange is going on like imports and exports would fall apart and uh, among other things. And it's in, and we'd radically have shortages of, and we'd immediately have radical shortages of all kinds of things. But the only way to stop that from happening is to make the kind of hard cuts that no one's going to be okay making until they've fully accepted that reality. Until you believe yes. that collapse is possible, you'll never accept saying, Hey, we're going to, cut social security benefits in half and we're going to cut medicare benefits in half and medicaid benefits in half and so many other benefits in half while keeping all the taxes the same you know what i mean no one's going to support something extreme like that until they believe in that reality yes it's in this happens to people all the time on a personal scale where they they're spending much more than they're making 
they get to a point where they have to be like they, something things start falling apart. Their car gets taken, mm-hmm. or they're you know they start getting evicted from their home or something, and then they have to make radical life, lifestyle changes. And for a while, they're just getting less out of life, mm-hmm. right? They're just they're just as they try and pay off their debts, as they try and become solvent. Yeah, but they could have done um, that by themselves earlier, and it wouldn't have been as bad. But it was bad yes. enough that most people aren't willing to make that choice. Yeah, not only would it not have been as bad, it's possible they would have had – in fact, it's not possible. It's likely they would have had much more because they wouldn't have to be paying interest and have these debts and have the other fallout that comes from it. It's uh, They've sacrificed the long term for the short term. But now try running on that as a politician. Try being the one who's like, you know all these programs that we talk about? All these things that were like, oh, what would you like the government to do this time? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those have costs. Mm -hmm. And we're going to keep the costs and you're going to feel them. (laughs) But all the benefits are going, you know, (laughs) some of the benefits are going to disappear. You're going to elect me and your life is going to get worse. Yeah. In the short run. In order to stop it from getting much worse in the medium run. Yes. And maybe maybe that much worse wouldn't hit until after you're dead anyway. Maybe we're stopping a disaster that's going to come after you're gone. Which is possible, but for everyone under 40, it's very – it's a lot less possible. I mean – Yes. At a certain point, these things are going to catch up. I mean, Social Security, the numbers we're talking about, (laughs) if you're under 40, by the time you retire, Social Security is going to be struggling. It's going to be struggling. I mean, those numbers are published. I mean, federal government – I mean, those are – Official numbers have been published talking about how I think it's I think it's 10, 15 years from now where Social Security will only be able to pay 75 percent of the expected benefits. Like they will only have 75 percent of the money. they. Need. Yes. Yeah. In, in any congressman in the Senate or House will know that at this point we'll, we'll be aware of that and we'll have <laughs> you know, as a as a body done nothing so far. Um. But once it starts, once that one hits, for example, I, you know, I imagine what they're going to do is they're just going to start paying for it in the short run. Um, they'll just be like, okay, we'll just add that to the budget. Yeah. Gonna, yeah. Increase the deficit, the deficit to, to, to take care mm-hmm. of it. It's like, okay, well, we solved one problem by making the other problem worse. Yes. We've got these leaky holes. We're going to plug, <laughs> we're going to take the plug out of this one to put it in that one. I think it's, I think it's more of we're, we're bailing out the ship, but instead of bailing the water out of the ship, we're moving it from one compartment to the other compartment. <laughs> this compartment's much larger, so it can handle it. Yes. But the yeah, water's not probably, leaving the ship. Analogy. Yeah, it's a uh, – it's really, really hard to stop it, especially when the consequences seem so far away and and may not occur on your watch, especially – I mean, it's, it's hard enough for the ordinary person when it's confronting them to change their lifestyle and deal with the debt that, you know, when they can often, there's, there's some scenarios where life is such, you can't deal with it at all. Um, but on a scale of politics where the politicians have to sell it, have to sell the idea mm-hmm. to the people, I, I've listened to people like, oh, we often mention breaking points on this show because they're a, they're new independent news group who are, I think do excellent work. They're also openly kind of Bernie Sanders socialist. Mm-hmm. And they talk about how uh, right now, one of the most popular, if you, there are a variety of programs that are extremely popular. If you poll people, um, things like free daycare. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, you could insert the word free before almost Anything any program popular. And, and ask people, do you want this? And the answer is yes. Of course they do. Free hot dogs. Why right? not? Yeah. <laughs> it, what's the worst? It could hurt yeah. me if it's free. Um, and it's not just, I'm not just suggesting that the people are ignorant. Um, we talked a little bit about the, the, cho- our choice theory where you have to make choices and you're making choices at the margin. And at the margin, you're looking at the costs and benefits and things and you're, you're calculating mm-hmm. this. That the margin of a personal choice in the face of debt and the the consequences that you're about to suffer are radically different than what a politician is looking at and what the voter is looking at. Yes, because if, if, if you're sitting there and you're getting offered a free hot dog 
by the federal government. You're making a personal judgment about what's best for your life. And you're like, is it better for the the federal deficit to be $2 less for me? Does that change my life? (laughs) Not at all. Having this hot dog, does it change my life? Yes. Simple calculation. (laughs) Because you're not making a calculation for the welfare of the federal government and you can't control what everyone else is doing. So how do you make that choice any other way but to accept the free thing? Like it makes perfect yes. sense. It makes perfect People sense. People aren't being this stupid. Is, They're trying to help themselves in a crumbling world as they say. Yes. And this is a fundamental, one of the fundamental reasons or that we're tapping into here. If we followed this route all the way through, this is one of the fundamental reasons I stopped being a conservative. Why I no longer feel like I, I'm a conservative. Um, because they're relying on some kind of patriotic service duty that allows people to step up and make sacrifices for this kind of common effort. And that that's where, that's the response to this. Um, whereas I think a, a system where the incentives always aligned with the personal ones would be, would work fundamentally better, mm-hmm. right? That, that you, that this is the predictable choice. This and yes, people can rise above system. it. Yes, people can rise above it, but ultimately in the long run, will they? No. In the long run, this is, you're gonna, you're gonna get some generations that are better than others. You're gonna get some more willing to sacrifice for the future than others. And ultimately, the can will be kicked slowly down the road until eventually it explodes. Because there have been times when the government has been not only conservative, but in a really good economic situation where they're, they're like, they're even bringing in a surplus and they balance the budget for that year. And it's like, woohoo, we did it. But usually what that means is they just didn't add to the national debt for that year. So they didn't Mm -hmm. actually fix any of the problem. They just for that year didn't add to it. You know what I mean? Yes. They're still paying interest on that debt. They haven't taken care of that debt problem. It's still there. They just didn't make it worse that year. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think this system allows for that illusion. It allows for people not to feel the consequences of their choices. It hides the the cost essentially right it 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 hides the cost in ways that you always feel them in your personal life or at least or you have to blind yourself not to feel them <laughs> at some point they come and kick you here they they may never they may fall on your children it, it's a the incentives are so fundamentally removed from what i understand to work on people right to actually influence people and change their behavior um that i just don't see i don't see people stepping up I think a collapse is going to happen. I think we have to take at least some minor hits like COVID to wake up and, and, uh, and maybe then, maybe the people could wake up and step up. Maybe for a time. <laughs> right. And maybe, and maybe that those times are frequent enough that we hang on for the foreseeable future. Uh, I've been encouraged as we, Brad and I've been looking at international things, uh, to see other countries moving in the opposite direction <laughs> anytime you uh i there's a british statesman who uh cracks me up uh his name escapes me uh i know his face and his voice well um but he talked about how they had exported their ideas to the united states and they hoped that the the ideas could then be exported from the united states back to them <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and help them out. Uh, and he said, and then he's like, I look where Britain is driving off a cliff and I look in our rear view mirror and I see America trying to overtake us. <laughs> just, That's the, funny. The way he phrased it, there's, there's some real truth to that. Um, If you had to say, uh, to jump back to the big picture, Brad, unless you had a comment on some of those scattered ideas I'm throwing. Yeah, yeah, the big the big picture here is that these problems are not imminent, but these problems are large. And and so so we're not we're not, you know, crying panic here. We're not saying freak out. We're saying there's an inability here to freak out that will ultimately result in an economic collapse of econo- of large proportions. Yes. So 
So I don't I don't know what you'd call that. It's a, it's a weird fatalistic despair. You know, we're in a slowly burning theater <laughs> and we're saying, have you noticed that it's impossible to say the word and then you can't say fire because it's just impossible to say it for some reason. You're like, <laughs> don't you think that's a problem? Don't you think there's a problem here? And people are like, yeah, but what do you do? And like, I don't know, but that's not enough of a reason to do nothing. As the building yeah, slowly burns. should be done, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> right? We're still in this building. So, so that's what we're doing here is we're saying, hey, there's there's something off here about the fact that this is not even close to being on the table of having a solution, mm-hmm. you know? all of the, Almost all of the solutions being proposed, all of the solutions being seriously looked at, like when people talk about balancing the budget, just aren't even close, so... We no, need they're, they're, we need a serious reevaluation. We don't have a perfect solution here. We're not going to propose any solutions here, but we need to figure some out. Yeah, you, this is so far out of the realm of what could be addressed, as you were saying that that the only rational choice, if you wanted to deal with this, is to start trying to figure out very, very, very small steps that could eventually work our way to addressing some of these problems. See, and I and, and I'd probably want the exact opposite. I'd say that the solutions that I think have any hope of working are radical out of the box ideas where you're just going to look at something completely differently. You know what I mean? Like Medicare and Medicaid are a great example of that, where there's so much money being poured into there and how corrupt the healthcare system is that if you revamped that whole system, you could probably provide care for most of those people and have it cost half as much. Those are the kind of solutions that I think are the only kind of thing that could get us out of a hole this big is we can't, we can't keep dumping $6 trillion into the federal budget each year. It's, it's just not going to work. You're absolutely right. I, and I think as, as you say that, uh, the, what we have to do with the mandatory spending programs, social security, Medicaid, Medicare, you're right. I think it has to be something like that. It has to be something rethinking it from the ground up. It's got to be out of the box and you've got to be able to sell it. You've got to have evidence of it working in other places, ideally, and so on. Um, in terms of, of getting some kind of getting people back into a habit of, uh, I don't know, but budgeting, is that the word we're looking Fiscal for? Fiscal responsibility. <laughs> Fiscal responsibility. I don't know. Some kind of, I don't know. I don't know. I'm now, I'm now thinking of it. It, it seems we have the tools to do this. We could do this. We lack the will. Um, and the will here in this case is a moral failing of some kind, a failure to control ourselves, a failure to, to look long-term, uh, that one of the reasons Paul's budget is going to be unpopular among the conservatives is it cuts defense. Defense is one of the biggest items on there. Surely we can cut something. Surely we can make that more efficient. Yeah. And, and the conservatives are going to be like, we can never cut defense to which I would reply with, what are the 40,000 troops stationed in Germany doing for our national defense? Because let me tell yeah. you, that base we, is we, not cheap. We've actually discussed that particular base. We were talking about Ukraine because that's kind of where they're poised, at least looking at right now. But 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 that's not why they're there in Germany specifically. <laughs> they're in Germany because of the world wars. Mm-hmm. And that's why there are 40,000 there versus, you know, you've got other NATO countries closer to Ukraine that'll only have three or 400. <laughs> so if it was about Ukraine, right. you'd have more troops in those countries. But it's not about Ukraine. It's about the Nazis. It's about the Nazis. Like, seriously, like, that's why they're there is because it was after World War II, a decision that was made almost 80 years ago and hasn't really been reevaluated since. That's cr- that's that's why they're that's there. crazy to think of it almost 80 years ago generations ago we decided right? to almost put 80 troops years there. ago because it's war yeah. ended in 45 yeah, 75 2022 77 so yeah. that's 77 what is that 77 years ago the war ended and it's, we started that's putting so troops weird. in germany we're so much in the mindset still of the world wars aren't we we never got out of them yeah like they just happened they did not just happen world war ii ago. is a long time ago. That's crazy. We are. Your Anyways, summary, I think, was very good. Here. That this is a that this is some kind of <laughs> slowly encroaching fire, and and it's so far off the table. People are arguing about all kinds of things in the room, and the fire is ignored. And eventually, it will become a massive problem. 
Um, it's already a problem to some degree, but but one day it'll explode per se or cause some kind of collapse or, or some kind of at least serious economic uh, downturn beyond any of the things we're talking about, like with COVID and whatnot. It'll be it'll be on a scale uh, truly epic. And in the meantime, just watch the clock, I guess. Go stare at it. <laughs> Feel a little political existential dread. <laughs> Good to feel that every once in a while. We'll see ya. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.